What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? Well, it's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help you. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. So to save, visit HealthLock.com today. That's HealthLock.com today. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great-tasting all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit Spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says the sun and you and me and all the stars that we can see are moving at a million miles a day. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Volkelbaum. And I'm Joe McCormick. I'm totally paying attention, guys. <laughs> All right, so we're uh, we're here. We're sitting around the the microphones. I I expect that means we're going to talk about something. Space tourism again. I was about to say we we literally just talked about space tourism. Yeah, we, but we didn't talk enough about money. The really exciting part of space. Oh, right. Uh, Joe had mentioned that he was upset that he wasn't able to afford it. Yeah, uh, all of the cool things I want to do are way too expensive. Well, Joe, come on, give me a rundown. What how how what are we talking about with too expensive? Uh, well, just a few examples. There were companies offering suborbital space flight, and uh, as a reminder, that's where you sort of uh, you go up in a spacecraft that's pressurized vehicle. And you technically enter space, right. but you don't orbit the Earth. Yeah, only it's just a 90-minute jaunt. Yeah, you stay up there briefly, you experience a little bit of weightlessness, you see the curvature of the Earth uh, and the stars, and that sounds really cool, but uh, Virgin Galactic is citing that that's going to cost you $250,000 per person. Once it's active. It's yeah. not even going Th- yet. That's just the yeah. proposal. Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, there is orbital space tourism. Mm-hmm. So that's where you would go up and uh, in a vehicle, say, join with the space station like the International Space Station or maybe a little bit further in the future with some kind of private space station. Mm-hmm. Um, and you would orbit the Earth there. Trips like that so far have cost in the range of 20 to 50 million. Well, yeah, that's, um, that's pretty expensive. Yeah. If you want to go to the moon... I totally want to go to the moon. Oh, it sounds great, doesn't it? (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's going to cost you $750 million, or if you want to take your wife with you or somebody else, I don't know, it's going to be $1.5 billion for the two of you. I have so many jokes I want to make right now, but I also want to remain married 
So I'm going to not joke about going to the moon without my wife. Let's be so sweet. Yeah, yeah. No, it'd be a it'd be a romantic uh, a, a vacation. A, a I mean, gray gray romantic adventure. You could together. have a another honeymoon. Congrat- Boy, congratulations, sir! Met with you the, have crossed the line. Met with the quiet, quiet, disinterested space. space. In space, no one can hear your scowling disapproval. Okay, okay. All so, right, so yeah, the, these the are all really expensive. So expensive. Yeah. There is no way anybody. I don't know about y'all's personal financials. There's no way I could ever, ever afford to do this. And in fact, I remember reading an interview. Or actually, it was more of a more of a report that someone wrote about Richard Garriott, who was the one member of the the space tourists. They hate that term, but the people, the private citizens who have paid to go private up into space, astronauts. private mm-hmm. astronauts, he was the, he's one that is considered to be kind of an evangelist for, for, uh, space exploration among private citizens. And, um, also the only one that I've ever personally met, but he was saying that he felt that, that his work was going very far into the democratization of space travel. And the person who wrote the article critiqued that a little bit by saying, well, at, at at thirty million dollars to go up, that's not really democratization. You're talking, you know, yes, you've opened it up, and that private citizens have gone up there, but it's such a small number who can afford to that it's not really democratization. Well, so we should ask the question: Are these prices ever going to come down? And if so, how? Well, how can we make it cheaper for the average person to go to space? We need to know why is it so expensive to start with. Well, that's a good point. That's the first, yeah. You know, in order for why us to know, it can it be so cheaper? We have to know why is it so expensive. Yeah. So one of the things is rockets, right? Yeah, they're not cheap. They're not cheap. Uh, the American Space Shuttle Endeavor cost some one point seven billion dollars to build, um, and NASA <laughs> said that each launch of it costs some four hundred and fifty million. And I gotta tell you guys, the ice maker on the Endeavor totally does not work. Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> it's just. I can't believe it. You're in space. Can't you just stick water out the window? You can. You can. I don't recommend drawing, <laughs> sticking your whole arm outside the window. But and and, and the thing is, is that is that 450 million dollar expenditure is uh, relatively low, really, yeah. when you consider the lifetime cost of the entire program, the, sure. the of the shuttle program overall. It's been estimated at 192 billion uh, in two in 2010 dollars. Yeah, billion and, with a B. Yeah, yeah, and that would put the average cost per launch from 1982 through 2010 at some 1.5 billion dollars. Yeah. Now, now, if you're talking about just launching a vehicle costs that much. That would go a long way to explaining why a ticket aboard any of these experiences would cost, uh, you know, a, that huge amount of money. You're you're not if if you're talking about paying a government agency. So, for example, the the space the private astronauts we talked about in the last episode, they were all going through Space Adventures, which was coordinating with the Russian Space Agency, right? Well, the Russian Space Agency is a governmental agency that was looking to offset maintenance costs. And so this, for them, was a a, a way of offsetting that, that expense. Space Adventures obviously took some sort of cut. We have no idea how much of a cut they took, but they took a cut as as coordinating this whole thing between the astronaut and the Russian space agency. But if you're talking about a private company that is making its main business as uh, taking people from Earth into space, they have to be able to offset all costs and make a profit, right? That's uh, assuming that they're operating a business the way we traditionally want a business to run, which is that you are generating enough revenue to offset all your costs so that you're making a profit at the end of the day. Well, if you're talking about something that's this expensive, that explains why those tickets have to be so high. Well, and and people have given a lot of flack to NASA about the amount that they've spent on their shuttle program. Um, numbers aren't really available for the Russian space shuttle program. Right. No, the uh, Russians are not terribly uh, communicative when it comes to that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, but they've been rumored to cost as little as 45 to $80 million per launch. That's, uh, yeah, significantly less money. Yeah, and, so. and you know, like SpaceX can send the Falcon 9. It, it advertises being able to send the Falcon um, up for, for $60 million, or under $60 million even. Mm-hmm. Um, for the record, SpaceX is one of the private space companies. Uh, right. right, right. That's the um, one that Elon Musk founded. Right, yeah. although those are unmanned, um, and they are still in testing phases for the manned Dragon capsules mm-hmm. uh, with, with, I mean, it's, it's, you know, they, they've got, they're supposedly going to be doing some safety tests as early as Q2 in 2014, so that's pretty exciting, but those would still 
be unmanned because they're still not entirely sure. The, the reason that they want to do some safety tests is to make sure that um, if things start exploding, that they can kind of throw the people to safety. Sure. So this yeah. is in an early stage in, in right. all of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, it, as it turns out, um, rockets specifically are incredibly expensive. They're expensive to build. They're expensive to fuel. They're expensive to operate. Uh, when you listen to our last podcast, when we were talking about the suborbital flights and they, they were much lower in, in price, uh, part of that is because you're talking about a lot of uh, uh, aircraft that are launched from other aircraft, right? Yeah, they're not the piggyback game. Yeah, exactly. They're not they're not launching from by a rocket from the surface of the earth and then have to reach escape velocity and then get out of earth that way. So one of the big expenses is not really a concern there. You know, you don't have the have to worry about the rocket stuff. So, yeah, I mean, as it turns out, uh, getting into space pretty pricey, right? But this is a problem that people are working on. I mean, it's it's to everyone's advantage to to bring these costs down. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, everything from uh, being able to do research and development to other types of scientific endeavors. Obviously, if you're able to lower that financial barrier, then you can do a lot more stuff. Uh, right. Right. You can start actually funding the projects. Um, right. Instead and- of just getting them up there. <laughs> OK. So so some of these high costs involved. I mean, you know, first of all, the, the startup costs are just absolutely crazy. Yeah, I mean, you, one you might have say to astronomical. Oh, dear. Um, you, you have to worry about regulations. I mean, first, we have to build a regulation industry for this sort of thing. Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, startup, that's a problem for any new technology, right? <laughs> yeah. you, when got, you talk about putting people into space, it's it's more than doubly so. But yes. Well, there you, you have to do extensive testing and stuff because you're dealing with human safety. Right. Uh, but with any new technology, there's going to be a problem with not not many other people are doing this yet. So you don't have like a lot of standardized parts you can use and stuff like that. Well, sure. I mean, like uh, Elon Musk, when he was working on SpaceX, talked about how when they were first looking at getting uh, rockets from the Russian space agency, that they'd be quoted a price for something like, you know, five rockets will be $20 million and they would agree upon that price. And then he would go to Russia and then say, oh, no, I'm sorry, it's $20 million per rocket. And suddenly your your price has quintupled, right? You've now had to pay $100 million <laughs> to get those five rockets. And he said that the problem is that there weren't a lot of other places you could go. It's not like you had any alternatives. You, you had a very few number of players in this game. So that was part of the problem, although uh, he's definitely – invested in SpaceX to try and work around that now. Oh, right, sure. And and that's one of the big things that people are talking about, um, getting, you know, a- allowing for multiple launch providers and vehicles um, so that you can cut down on, on launch failure costs, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, about 90, uh, o- only about 90% of launches are successful. Um, the, the other 10% having to uh, be taken down for a few days in order to uh, you know, figure out what went wrong right, and right. get it back up there, get it up safely. Yeah, so and when we're saying that there's a 10% failure rate, we're not talking catastrophic failure. Right, right. certainly not. Um, you're, you're not looking at, at the challenger happening right. 10% of the time. Right. Um, uh, of course, then again, a catastrophic failure on a rocket is much worse than a catastrophic failure on a toaster. Yes. Absolutely. And that is one of those things that, that one of the reasons why testing is so expensive for this kind of thing. Right. Um, I mean, also when you're dealing with uh, equipment that has cost you a few hundred million dollars to put together and it does go wrong in testing, that's, that's a more, that's a bigger setback than again, a toaster. Um, but, uh, but, but once you get multiple manufacturers working in this field and, uh, some, some industry standards for mm-hmm. how to build these parts, uh, you know, you're, you're not going to have the example of, um, of a single company creating all the parts for something. Uh, like with NASA back in the day, one of those big famous, reasons why stuff got so expensive for NASA so quickly was that these companies that were making parts for them had basically gone out of business in all other sectors. They were only making parts for the space program and uh, and no one else had the technology to make them. Right. So they can determine what the price is and NASA would have to pay it because there wasn't an alternative. And and furthermore, their costs of of creating this stuff was were, were way higher than they otherwise would have been because they weren't doing anything else to make income happen. Mm. Yeah. Um, but yep. you know, th- there was that one time that I think NASA had to buy some stuff on eBay because <laughs> they ran out of parts and no one was making them anymore. Wow. Yeah, it's it's not not the most useful. They also um, got a, a like- lovely little Yoda cookie dispenser. <laughs> True fact. What they needed was like an out-of-print uh, Grateful Dead bootleg LP from the 1970s. There's a lot of blacklight posters to go aboard the ISS. <laughs> we are very quickly disassembling this serious podcast. Anyway, 
Uh, yeah, but there, there other problems with rocket launch include the fact that you've got a lot of like uh, material and part waste in it, right? Oh, you don't, sure. You don't have enough reusable parts and materials. Like, there's this idea of the single stage to orbit rocket. You've heard of this, right? Yeah. That, that it's a single vehicle that can launch itself into space without having to just basically throw the rocket away and let it fall into the ocean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you could get some reusable tanks for stuff like that, then that would... Or, Cut or, down on the Or even cost. better recycling yeah. processes would be much better. But uh, as far as I'm aware, no technology like this has been even close to realized. No, they're thinking really hard about it, but right now it's, it's all right in those early dangerous testing stages. Um, mm-hmm. Also just infrastructure. Sure. Uh, we, you know, we would need to add a lot to either, I mean, to make it really cheap, if you could add something to existing um, airports or, or space ports, I guess, um, uh, space centers, then that would help out a lot. But, right. you know, we don't have the capacity to send uh, tourist flights up at the current yeah, moment. You, you, uh, one of the ones I like to talk about is um, Spaceport America, which is in New Mexico. Real thing, y'all. I'm not joking. I've not heard of this. Uh, yeah, Spaceport America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, totally. It's it's a thing. So that would be a, a rare example. <laughs> I'm, you guys are looking at me like I'm crazy. It really is. I've never heard of this. Sounds like a theme park. No, you've never. We're usually looking at you like you're crazy. Okay, Jonathan. no, but it's it's really it's okay. really a spaceport that's been built for commercial uh, space. Uh, uh, endeavors. So it's, you know, look it up. It really, I've got okay, it on my screen. I believe now. you. So anyway, <laughs> it's, it's, um, that's a, that's a rare example of someone getting together, raising the money and building out something from the ground up that is not an, uh, additive facility on something that pre exists, right? So, like you're saying, that's the exception, not the rule, because to do that costs even more money, right? To just build the place where the the spacecraft are going to take off and land. Uh, yeah. So okay. So so people are working on solutions to these problems. And Joe, I think that you had some numbers on how that's going. Yeah, I'm going to quote from the abstract of a paper by uh, Powell, Mays, and Rather that uh, I'm going to refer to in a minute here. Uh, but what they say is quote. Despite decades of efforts to reduce rocket launch costs, improvements are marginal. Launch cost for LEO for cargo is about $10,000 per kilogram of payload, and to higher orbit and beyond, much greater. And human access to the ISS still costs about $20 million for a single passenger. So that sounds like absolutely no progress at all. <laughs> or maybe marginal progress, uh, depending on inflation rates. Right, if you, if you take inflation into account, we have... Uh, we have made uh, progress, but it is hard to illustrate because the actual amounts have remained it's the like same. It's like that 1% <laughs> raise that you get that is almost Yeah, more. it's supposed to be that whole cost of living raise. Yeah. Um, yeah so all right, so this is depressing. Uh, what other alternatives might we have to this whole really costly rocket business? Well, you might have seen that video um, of a frog that had been on the side of the rocket and tried to hitch a ride up. I don't recommend that. That that is still I I feel that really is, bad for that frog and it is still one of my favorite photos of 2013. It was just so it, just perfect in the air. silhouette of a frog. It's also still rocket. Yeah, still rockets. But 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 if you're hitching a ride, that's it's free. free. <laughs> that's what hitching means. There's no such thing as a free rocket. <laughs> okay, okay. So we got so to talk about alternatives. Yeah, non-rocket space launch. How so, do you get into space without a rocket? Well, uh, being there already. Is great. Okay. But, cool. Uh, but, but be born in space. You're, be born in space. On the surface of the Earth. Right. And you How do you get, get from Earth to space? In fact, not just to space, but to orbit. Because sure. that's what really matters. So, uh, right now, we don't really have a way of doing that, but we have several ways that kind of border between science fiction and science fact. Like the, the principles we understand and we think, you know, on paper we can get them to work. Whether we can ever make them practical is a matter of engineering. Yeah, so we've got hundreds of really interesting ideas on how to do this, but none are proven. So Space Elevator, obviously one of our favorites. Mm-hmm. We've talked about this before on the show. Right, yeah. the idea is that you've got a essentially a line that is anchored at two points. One is on the surface of the Earth, somewhere on the equator, and another one is in uh, on an anchor that's in orbit around the Earth. So you've got this tether that connects the the anchor point that's around orbit to the Earth to the Earth's surface, and then you have an elevator, uh, a device that can climb said tether, 
uh, from the surface of the Earth all the way out to the anchor point out in space, where you would then be able to launch uh, off into wherever you needed to go at a much lower uh, cost of energy because you don't have to escape the Earth's gravity. You don't have to have that escape velocity because the elevator has done all that work for you. Yeah, in, uh, in contrast to the figures we cited a minute ago, the numbers that usually fro- float around are that people estimate the space elevator would cost about 100 to $400 per pound. Yeah, but significantly that's a total less. estimate. We don't really know because yeah, there's we, nothing that we haven't built yet. it, and yeah. and we don't know how expensive it would be to build. So when well, you take into that <laughs> that that lifetime cost, or if it's even possible, right? Because, because we don't know that we can find anything that will have the tensile strength necessary to be able to uh, to provide that tether. Mm-hmm. And of right? course, pe- people really like saying things about carbon nanotubes. So, Well, carbon nanotubes uh, may not even have the tensile strength. Mm-hmm. They are stronger than diamond, but they may not have the tensile strength necessary to be a, a viable cable. There are some other uh, possible alternatives that are even stronger than carbon nanotubes, but all of those are, are uh, materials that are so experimental that we're able to Unobtainium right now. Yeah, Yeah. you're able to produce like a one atom thick strand of it, which obviously would not work for something like an elevator tether. Okay. Oh, are there any kooky non-rocket launch ideas out there that don't involve exotic materials of some kind? Sure. Let me talk about a launch loop. A launch loop. Yeah, this is one that I had to read. I had to read for about an hour. It sounds so crazy. It it's pretty crazy. So. All right, so a launch loop, uh, imagine that you've got a really long, um, they call it a sheath. Think of it as a, a tube. It's an enclosed tube uh, in which you are able to create a vacuum. So, so it's a hyperloop to space. Hyperloop to space is, it's not... Totally no. wrong, but it's a little, <laughs> it's a little different. You don't have okay. little air, air uh, bearings to go on. So yeah, but think of a tube. So you got a tube that's got a vacuum inside of it. Uh, uh, and also inside this tube is a second tube. This tube is made out of iron. It's called a rotor. And it's, uh, you, you use magnets so that it ends up being suspended within the first tube, right? Because okay. iron's, you know, a, a ferrous material, so you sure. can do that. So you, you create this, uh, system where the iron is essentially floating within the confines of this sheath. Uh, then you use electromagnets, linear motors, essentially, to start, um, spinning that iron rotor within the sheath. Once it starts spinning, that's going to create angular momentum, which will actually cause the uh, the the sheath to rise up into the air if you start spinning it fast enough. We're talking super fast, so fast that uh, for a four thousand kilometer length sheath in in one loop, uh, the iron would make a full revolution in six minutes for four thousand kilometers. Um, that's really fast. Yeah. So you're going super fast at that speed. It rises up. Uh, this this uh, it's anchored at the on the Earth at two points. Um, some cables actually are also anchoring it, so it doesn't fly into the wrong shape. It eventually, at around eighty kilometers, ends up becoming more or less parallel to the ground. It also has to be somewhere close to the equator, probably on the ocean somewhere. Uh, you would have two stations that would be elevated. Uh, the east station and the west station. You would travel from the west to the east. So the way this would work is first you would catch essentially what would amount to be an elevator uh, that would climb the cable up till you got to the west station. For the west station, you would then board a capsule, which would then be propelled across the length of the... Um, of the the cable that's like 2,000 kilometers long at this point toward the east station. Uh, along the way, you would reach orbital velocity and be released out into space, where then you would use whatever your capsule's uh, uh, propulsion mechanism is to orient yourself properly and then go on your merry little way. Um, this sounds crazy to me, <laughs> because the amount of energy you would need to move that much iron, essentially 4,000 kilometers of iron, that fast would be equivalent to what you would see in a nuclear explosion. Uh, you would be using these really super powerful linear motors to, to achieve that, but I can't imagine where you get all that power. And if something 
bad happens, I can't imagine what the fallout would be. Now, granted, it would not be a nuclear explosion. There's no nuclear reaction going on with this. It's purely physical. Also, you would have to worry about heat. If any leak happened along that sheath uh, and air got in, those little bitty air molecules, which would seem to be harmless to anybody, are going to interact with that rotor moving at incredible speeds, generate tons of heat, and then you have a catastrophic failure. Yeah, this all sounds like... Like, obviously, you would be using a lot less fuel from that capsule, you know, from this from this great height into orbit itself. But the energy expenditure, you wouldn't really be saving anything, I don't think, from. Well, Well, it's debatable. Yeah, it, it it supposedly takes less energy to operate it. You would have to operate continuously. I can't imagine how you would turn Uh, it off. If you turned it off, that. It seems like it would collapse. Yeah, it? it would yeah. start. There's supposed to be uh, the designs also involve parachutes so that if the thing does turn off, that it would parachute down because otherwise you're talking about, you know, four kilometers of iron falling to the Earth's surface or to the uh, ocean surface or possibly yeah. if it breaks off could go into orbit. Um, but it's yeah, it's not. And the whole thing, by the way, your capsule and everything, it connects to this cable uh, as a like electromagnetically. Mm-hmm. So it's not that you, it's not like it's got little hooks. Like the first time I read it, I, I imagined one of those, uh, <laughs> if you've ever played with one of those really old race car tracks oh, yeah. where the car went onto a hook, like the car, that w- there was nothing special about the car. It would just hook onto a little hook and the hook would travel the length of the track. Mm-hmm. That's what I imagined at first, but no, it's electromagnetic. It's not actually a physical connection. <laughs> but, um, the more I read about this, and I, and I don't pretend to understand everything about this. I'm not an engineer, and uh, a lot of the stuff I read was, I mean, all of this is really hypothetical or, yeah. you know, at best theoretical. Um, I, I have a real hard time believing that this would be something that that could be achievable. I, I think just getting it to, uh, to the right elevation would be really challenging because you're talking about something that's mounted on platforms out in the ocean. And you would have to start it off at a very gradual speed and then build up speed to have this thing elevate to the right height based upon that angular momentum. I have a real hard time imagining all of that. I mean, it it could very well be in the realm of possibility. It's just beyond my understanding. It does. uh, It's something about the, the picture of it in your brain seems so violent. You know, just the movement of that much mass around yeah. in the loop, it, it, it seems crazy for that reason. Sure, yeah. Um, but then again, I, I mean, I, I'm no engineer. I, I couldn't really judge, but it, it does seem pretty wacky. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about something else. Let's talk about something that uh, is you know, perfectly feasible, like uh, shooting people into space with magnets. <laughs> there are all different kinds of ways to shoot people into space. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so th- there is this concept of something that's like basically a space gun. It's just like a cannon that you could shoot something to try to achieve Pretty orbital sure velocity. It's like, like a French like, film that covered like this. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the problem is, of course, that creates way too many G-forces and would kill you yeah, if you... Would- you- your your skull your skull would liquefy just like an um, event horizon, Lauren. You remember that movie? I yeah. do remember that movie. Uh, and so there are uh, other ideas that are like, well, what if we could do a similar concept? So the goal is to throw you into space. Right. So we're thro- talking like a yeah. trebuchet. Yeah. To get Actually, we're you talking going, about a Bob's big boy with an arm that's cocked back. To get you going so fast that you just by your own momentum. Escape Earth's gravity yeah. and achieve orbital velocity. Yeah. Um, so, wow, that, that seems like that would require a lot of speed, and it does, but if they slowly work you up to that speed, you could do it. Well, right. and again, they're lo- talking, in this case, you're talking about a, a maglev approach, right? Yeah, yeah I want to uh, cite one specific example of the, the general mass driver kind of approach. And this is the Star Tram. So again, we're talking about a system where you have a, a vacuum or near vacuum tube. So yeah. you've cut down on air resistance. Well, so that's no longer a factor. No, I can explain it here. It's, sure. uh, I'm citing from the paper, uh, maglev launch, ultra low cost, ultra high volume access to space for cargo and humans. And that's, uh, the paper I referred to earlier by, uh, Powell, Mays, and Rather. 
And so basically the proposed star tram system is like an orbital launch version of a maglev train. Mm-hmm. Um, so a magnetized capsule containing cargo or passengers is accelerated by electrically powered magnetic propulsion through a ground level tube that's been pumped free of atmosphere. Uh, and so you think about it like basically a giant vacuum pipe. So it is kind of like we so referred to the like hi- the hyperloop. Yeah, we referred to the hyperloop earlier. Yeah, hyperloop the, is low pressure, but this would be total vacuum exactly. or as close to it as we could possibly get. Right, it'd be near vacuum. Um, and so superconducting magnets on the vehicle push outward, and they keep the vehicle from touching the inner walls of this giant tunnel. So you, you're not losing speed due to friction. Right. It levitates magnetically just like a maglev train. It's mm-hmm. floating in the air. And so that helps it achieve virtually unlimited speed. There's no friction of right, any Right, to kind. hold it back. Sure. Um, and meanwhile, the tunnel sends pulses of current through aluminum rings along the length of the tube, and this pushes the magnets on the vehicle to accelerate it. Um, and th- yeah, th- so like I said, there's basically no limit to the speed as long as it remains in a vacuum or near vacuum. And eventually the spacecraft attains speeds greater than eight kilometers per second or about Oof. five miles per second, uh, and is blasted out the end of the tunnel like a bullet. Uh, and with the help of a very modest rocket burst, it makes its way to low Earth orbit. Yeah, it also, by the way, if you happen to be anywhere near that Oh, other you, side, you're gonna you don't want to be anywhere near it. Yeah, because you're gonna get some uh, sonic booms. No, they they say that this thing should come out in a an unoccupied area. Yeah, um, and so what they propose is a two stage system. So the first implementation is generation one, and that's easier, but it's only okay for cargo. And uh, generation two would experience less G-force trauma, so it would be okay for humans. And the way Generation 1 works is that it can just, frankly, it can just accelerate along the ground and then run up the side of a tall mountain, and that's all they have to do. Um, and the authors think that this is doable by 2020 with ideal funding, but that's probably not going to happen. Yeah, mm-hmm. that would be yeah. ideal. Um, oh. uh, Generation 2 cannot go up the side of the mountain. Why? Well, what happens when you come out of the tube, from the vacuum tube to suddenly a place where there's air? You hit you hit air, which immediately means that you hit resistance. Yeah, you, so you're going to decelerate and you're going to heat up. Yeah, you're going to slow down and heat up really fast. That's fine for cargo, but if you've got people in the capsule, the G-forces of doing that could kill them. Um, so what it needs to do is it needs to be magnetically levitated up higher, higher, and higher uh, until the end of that tube is about 20 kilometers or 12.4 miles up off the surface of the Earth. Wow. That and, just, it, it, this blows my mind. Yeah. So what, what basically what they say is that the 20-kilometer uh, exit is doable through magnetic levitation. So you've got dual maglev here. The capsule is suspended in the tube by magnets, but then the tube itself is suspended by magnets over the surface of the Earth. And this is a dual system, so it's got superconducting magnets pointing in both directions from the bottom of the tube and from the track along the ground. Sure. Now, this is where I have a real hard time imagining this, because I'm trying to imagine the end of a tube that's suspended 20 kilometers above the surface of the Earth that has... Uh, magnets powerful enough both in the tube and along the ground beneath so that the tube remains, uh, upright. The upright, yeah, levitated. Um, cause you know, I, I don't know what angle they're talking about here. Like I can't, I don't know what distances we're talking about, right? I would imagine it, it, it's probably a fairly, uh, aggressive angle because, you know, I don't, I don't know why you would have a gradual angle to get out of the Earth's uh, orbit, that would mean that your track would have to be incredibly long. So I imagine that it's probably a fairly aggressive angle, kind of similar to, um, and not necessarily like straight back like you would be if you were on a rocket. Oh, no. But uh, no, it's much more gradual than that. Oh, is it? Yeah, it's wow. an angle. Well, I mean, I, so I have some illustrations here, but I, I don't. Yeah, I don't know I don't if the know illustrations the are, ang- are are accurate. It just makes me think. It's, like, it's certainly not vertical. Because if you're talking about going out so that you're 20 kilometers high, keep in mind the uh, that that side of your right triangle is going to be the longest side, right? That's the <laughs> the distance down and the distance straight back to the point of origin are going to be shorter than that that angle. Yeah, you're essentially at the hypotenuse. Um, it's yeah. You know, it's hard for me to imagine 
how powerful those magnets would have to be to keep it suspended. I'm sure it's possible. Uh, it's just one of those where I'm thinking, like, man, don't wear any ferrous material when you take go the coins out of your, your pockets. Pocket. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So. Uh, they address this in the paper, so they say that it's going to be lifted up by the magnets and it has to be held in place for stabilization by tethers to the ground. Sure. Um, and so what what they say is that the launch tube has high current superconducting cables that magnetically interact with the second set of high current SC cables on the surface uh, beneath, and that creates a levitation force that of, it's several metric tons per meter of tube length. That's a quote from their paper. And what they say is that that levitation force is greater than the weight of the launch tube. I, I understand that. I just don't understand where they're getting the energy to do At, that. When you start putting it this way, I'm starting to think that this whole space elevator thing has a lot of promise. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, see, the superconducting also, that the, the problem with superconductors in general is that most of them have to be super cooled to work, right? You can't just... There are very few superconductors that work at quote-unquote warm temperatures. And by warm, I'm talking about hundreds of degrees below uh, freezing, but but still... But not at absolute zero. Yeah, not at yeah. absolute zero. Um, uh, so although, you, although, I mean, people are working on that technology yeah, as well, yeah. but right now it's it's happening in you know like the nano to micro kind of scape, right? So yeah, it's just it's just uh, I mean I'm sure it's a possibility. Again, it's one of those things like the launch loop. It's very hard for me to envision based upon my admittedly limited understanding of superconductors and magnetism. Yeah. So even if we believe they can do what they say they can do, uh, the authors of this paper themselves suggest that the Generation 2 one, the one that will provide human passengers, sure. so that's the one relevant to space tourism, mm-hmm. will cost $67 billion. Um, but put that in contrast with something that they also cite, which is that the launch volume of this would make it worth it. Because it could pump out 300 tons of cargo and 400,000 passengers a year. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. So, so that make it up in volume. Yeah. Yeah. And, and for, for that kind of system, that's not a very expensive cost at all. So I, you know. Yeah. I mean, looking, <laughs> looking still at lower the relative, than the shuttle program. Sure, sure. Yeah. So I, again, one of those things that, that if they can get the engineering to work out, then that would be amazing. I mean, uh, I think I think this would be truly an awesome sight to behold. Just the just the levitating track that extends twenty kilometers into the sky alone would it, blow my yeah, mind. Yeah, yeah. For, for the record, like Mount Everest is about eight kilometers up. So if that gives you any kind of earthly yeah. idea. Yeah. So all of these non-rocket space launch ideas, they sound really cool, but at the same time, sound like how is that possible? It, over and over again, when you look at these, it's like, that's really interesting. It seems so implausible. I don't want to say they can't do it because right. I, I think they should go for it. I mean, I am all for people researching methods like these. But for now, maybe we should turn back and try to focus on, okay, let's say these ideas like the space elevator, launch loop, maglev. Uh, let's say they're 20 to 30 years away. <laughs> <laughs> Let's say they're not. Let's say that they are actually as implausible as they sound. Okay. Um, what are some ways that we could practically reduce the cost of space tourism if we're stuck with with basically still pretty expensive launch costs? Okay. So what you're saying is uh, the cost of getting someone up into space has remained the same. So we haven't yeah. magically found some way to make rockets super cheap. But, is there right. a way? Sorry. Oh, no, no, no. Well, just, you know, yeah. How can we make it cheaper um, for, for the, the for average the actual user? traveler? Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. So, uh, yeah, let's let's hear some ideas. Okay. So we can't, if we can't affect the cost of the, that's going to be incurred at, at the base level, then how can we make the ticket price lower? Joe, you, you seem to have an idea. Uh, well, it's not my idea, but how about a lottery? Uh, are you right now? I'm I'm bad at math. I like lotteries. <laughs> no, Lauren, I mean, Lauren, you did not participate in the last office lottery. I, I, you are so correct. And they bought the ticket two blocks away. So it was one of those moments where like the winning ticket was bought near my office. I'm talking about a lottery that's better than one for money. This is a lottery to go to space. Okay, that yeah, is a much Buzz, cooler lottery. That is true. Yeah, that is Buzz, true. Buzz Aldrin has voiced support for this idea. Uh, I want to give a quote that he gave to Popular Mechanics in 2008. Uh, he said, I want to increase the opportunity for more people uh, to share in going to orbit. I think I can establish a controlled, legal, highly productive, random selection of small investments by people and a selection process that works like a lottery. The experience that you can win is non-transferable. That means 
you put a name down, you buy a ticket, and that person has to use it or lose it. So you can't scalp your ticket to exactly. orbit. Exactly That's right. really good. Thank yeah. you. Um, Thank you, Buzz, for putting that yeah, clause so, in there. Yeah, so I think that that idea makes a lot of sense to me. So you could have, well, there are, uh, there will obviously still be rich people who can afford to pay the cost to get a guaranteed ticket to space, but there will also be plenty of tickets that you can put up for lottery. So you could buy a $10 space lottery ticket. Unfortunately, there's a $19.9 million convenience fee. <laughs> I'm just thinking that Buzz Aldrin would work like Ticketmaster. <laughs> nice. No, no. Oh, yeah, but no, that's a great idea. This idea of, sure, you know, you know you're buying a, a chance and that chance may be determined by how many other people are participating in that particular lottery, right? Uh, sure. And in the same way that many, uh, state money related lotteries go to fund the, the state education system mm-hmm. or something like that. The money that you'd be putting in would be going to to awesome stuff. I mean, space research and sending one of your fellow human people up for that kind of experience. That's pretty cool. Uh, exactly. And and I think one thing that's cool about this is um, so obviously it will still mean that most people who buy a ticket won't get to go. But what it will mean is that not everybody who goes is going to be somebody who's filthy rich. Right. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and call dibs here. I volunteer as tribute. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking lotteries here. So I just wanted to get my word in there before... Uh, before all the tickets are sold. Nice. Thank you. So, yeah, I mean, that's kind of an interesting idea. Again, we're, we're, you know, obviously you're talking about how this does not truly offset the cost of getting someone into space directly. But again, if you have a, a lottery that's successful enough, then just through the, the sheer number of tickets you've sold, you've managed to offset that. That's yeah. a fantastic idea. I, I very much support that idea. And I want to talk about another one. Okay. Uh, this is one that I mentioned in the video episode I wrote mm-hmm. about this. Uh, how about doing research? Yeah, every single person, as far as I can tell, every single person who has gone to the ISS uh, as their private astronauts uh, has done some kind of scientific research while up there. Uh, but if you take it a little bit further, if you really do volunteer as tribute to, uh, yes. to, to, to go up for, for scientific purposes. If you want to find out what the effects of space have on a tubby podcaster, <laughs> I, I am a perfect subject <laughs> for that. I hear uh, zero gravity restores hair growth. Oh, don't tease me, Joe. That's a dragon I've been chasing a long time. Ouch. Ooh, just got real in here, you guys. No, nah, okay. I'm fine with being bald. It's beautiful, y'all. No, no, but you, no, You make it work, dude. Thank you. I appreciate that. But no, Richard Garriott is a great example of that. Truly an evangelist for space travel and that uh, while there, there aren't any hard and fast figures that are absolutely verifiable, there are a lot of estimates that are out there that suggest that the work he did and he talks about, you know, the fact that he did perform scientific experiments while aboard the ISS uh, may have offset his ticket price by a significant amount of money. Now, granted, we're still talking about you know, a potential $30 million price tag and a six or $7 million uh, uh, reduction in that because of the work he did. But that's still kind of a proof of concept. Oh, sure. Now, if you were able to perhaps have a private company that created a program where people could apply to be the next pioneer, you know, the next private astronaut, and they're going to be continuing on some sort of scientific research in the process, maybe that would bring things within the range of more people, perhaps not your average traveler, but at least lower that ceiling a bit. Right. So Richard Garriott was able to offset part of his costs with scientific research. But the thing about him is He's not like a PhD scientific researcher, is it like a like a professional? Yeah, I mean, he was he, a computer games programmer, right? I mean, a smart dude, granted, super smart. But, uh-huh. Oh yeah, but no, not a scientist. Not to knock him at all. I just mean that, that that's an not example. Not an astrophysicist, right? That I think that your average person with the right amount of training, I'm sure, could be authorized to do useful research in space, sure. especially if they document everything in a way that makes sure, okay, we can rule out errors. And right. I agree that I still think that if you are secretive enough when you're the corporation and the real experiment is finding out what happens to the person, <laughs> that, you know, you can give them any busy work and it's fine. Um I think that would be really cool. In fact, in, for some people, it might even enhance the experience. Sure. If I were going to go to space, you're, you're I would a contribution. love to be able to do oh, research yeah. in space. I mean, I don't know if we talked about, did we mention earlier how much of a premium there is on zero-G 
space. I don't think oh, we yeah. did. No. I mean, we we kind of alluded to it, but we didn't really go into it. Yeah, I mean, there's there are a lot of industries that are looking at using uh, zero G environments to do all sorts of testing, everything from medical testing to designing various prototypes, every, you know, just about anything you can imagine. All these different industries, it's an invaluable resource, and it's the most limited resource we have right now because. You have one option, really, which is to go and work on the ISS, and that that is a an incredibly short list of people that are allowed to do that. And aside from science, this could be a really worthwhile venture. Coming back to money, actually, this could make economic sense in the long run. Um, if we work out exactly how to do it. Uh, back in 1995, NASA and the Space Transportation Association put together a whole report on what they thought about this potentially future burgeoning uh, space tourism industry. And and they pointed out that travel and tourism are one of the world's largest businesses. Uh, gross revenues in the U.S. alone exceed like $400 billion per year. Um, so not too shabby. And if you can expand that beyond the, you know, into into the limitless reaches of space, then this this could make us some money. The the scope of the project, you know, would would have to be worthwhile in order to kind of cash into that. Um, there, there was another really good report done in the mid 90s by the uh, Japanese Rocket Society that looked at all of the costs and development of, of this kind of program and what exactly it would take to make it profitable. Um and they estimated that to be financially feasible, a, a space tourism program would need over 50 vehicles and would need to embark on tens of flights every day. Although tens of flights to space is still a lot of, I mean, you know, it's, yeah. it, it sounds ridiculously low, especially when you consider that commercial flights do some, you know, three million passengers per day. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, flying to Duluth is a little different than flying to the moon. It is, but but once you, they were saying, well, but the, once you get there, <laughs> it's about the same. Oh, well, and either way, you know, the, the relative merits of Duluth aside, um, people aren't going to be spending these millions of dollars uh, on, on a trip to Duluth anytime soon. Um, but if you could get that number down to something slightly more reasonable, something like, like $20,000 per flight, this report from the Japanese Rocket Society was, was saying that at that cost, they were looking at generating over $10 billion per year from this sort of industry. Yeah. Um, so, so it could, it could, in theory, it almost becomes a chicken and the egg thing, right? Because oh, you're course. like, how how do you get up the money so that you can end up creating the business that will then allow create you to the money. yeah create the money so that you can continue to grow the business? Um, I mean, we're talking about a, a brand new industry that's growing on something that has been established but not put to the purpose of tourism. Um, you know, I, I still remain optimistic. I think that we are going to see successful space tourism industries. Uh, I, I hope that we see it soon. Like even if we're talking just suborbital, uh, just suborbital seems so dismissive. It's still an incredible achievement. Oh, sure. But uh, assuming that we can see some real success in the coming year, uh, and, and next couple of years, I'm really hopeful that w- this actually does become a real industry. I would love to be able to go up into oh, space and have that experience. That yeah. would be phenomenal. And, and these, these initial reports were talking about this kind of thing being feasible, uh, by about 2020. And that was back in the mid nineties. So I think that that was, um, I mean, you know, considering the state of the industry at the time, that was a pretty ambitious estimate. Yeah, sure. However, we've made such wonderful advances in the past 10 years that I you wonder know. if it's still a 30-year rollout, though. I mean, we do have those rolling rollouts, right? The whole, <laughs> in 30 years, it'll happen. In 20 years, it'll well, happen. We do, we do. But I think that some of the some of the numbers that the companies that are looking into this uh, have have stated have been similar. And, so. and it's clear that people like Richard Branson, people like Jeff Bezos, people like Elon Musk are very serious about this. They have made huge strides toward it. It's not like they came up with a crazy plan, did a little bit of work, and then said, yo, this is way too hard. No, they stuck with it. I mean, Virgin Galactic's a great example in that that was something they were hoping they would have their first flight, suborbital flight in 2007. Didn't happen. They're still working on it, but they in 2014, early 2014, they've already had another test flight. They that 
they're determined to make this work. So that gives me a lot of hope as well, because I know that when people put their minds to something, uh, it's, it's pretty much impossible to stop them from doing it eventually, right? I mean, if they're determined to do it, it's going to happen unless the very laws of physics themselves deny it. And even and then, even then yeah, Elon Musk work, is pretty know, much like, yeah. yeah. Get a sonic <laughs> screwdriver in there and you're good to go. So, um, while I know that we've talked a lot about the, uh, the barriers and the obstacles that are in the way, remember that in, Forward thinking, we always like to acknowledge the fact that there are barriers and obstacles, but we don't let that discourage us, right? That's just something else that we take into account when we start to think about the future. And it's not this is what's going to prevent the future from happening. It's this is something we need to remember when we're working toward that future. Right. So, you know, I'm really excited to see where this goes in the next few years. And uh, I really do hope that sometime in my life I'm able to take advantage of this. Uh, it may mean that I'm going to have to sell a limb, but I'm going to figure it out. It's going to happen. That will so, actually make you cheaper to take into space. I'll okay. wait less. Yeah. Yeah, way less. Good yeah, thinking. so that's a good way to lose lose ten pounds really quickly. All right, so uh, guys, if you've enjoyed this, make sure you go to our website fwthinking.com. That's where we have all the videos, we have the blog posts, we have the podcast episodes. We've got lots of content there. It's really awesome. You should go check that out. Also, remember you can follow us and interact with us on social media. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Google Plus with FW Thinking. We're at all of those. Come and be part of this conversation. Tell us what you're excited about in the future. Uh, maybe we'll even be able to do an episode about it. We're really excited with the exchanges we've had with our audience. It's been fantastic. Uh, so keep up the good work, guys. You guys are, are an inspiration to us, and we hope we can help inspire you guys. And we will talk to you again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Tired of restless nights? At Lisa, we know good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. From memory foam mattresses to hybrids that keep you cool all night long, Lisa's mattresses offer exceptional comfort and support with free delivery and 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.